Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Zachary Kaufman, Associate Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of Houston Law Center. We will discuss his article, Protectors of Predators or Prey, Bystanders and Upstanders Amid Sexual Crimes, which is published in the Southern California Law Review, as well as his work generally in the area. So welcome to the show, Zach. Thank you very much for having me, Brian. I'm such a huge fan of your podcast, so I'm really excited to be on the show. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much. Um, Well, so, Zach, I mean, I wonder if we could kind of start this conversation by you talking a little bit about the concept of bad Samaritan laws, because I'll confess that before reading your article, I'd never heard of those before. And I thought it was a really interesting concept and one that I think you do a really interesting job of kind of framing and discussing in a way that sort of helps understand or helps explain why this is an important and relevant concept in the context of thinking about sexual violence. Well, thank you, um, Brian. So, so bad Samaritan laws are statutes that impose a legal duty to assist others in peril through intervening directly, um, which is also known as the duty to rescue, uh, or notifying authorities, also known as the duty to report. And part of the contribution I hope my article makes to the literature is to first reevaluate the, the controversy over these laws in light of recent developments, and second, Um, to correct other scholars' mistaken claims about the supposed rarity of such statutes, particularly in the United States. Mm. Well, so why are bad Samaritan laws controversial? And and more to the point, like, sort of, what do they look like? What does it mean to talk about a bad Samaritan law? Um, So thank you, um, Brian. The the controversy over bad Samaritan laws is complex and, and multifaceted. First, the, the nature of these laws are, um, is criticized um, because they supposedly punish character rather than conduct. They're um, sometimes vague and thus uh, difficult to enforce and possibly unconstitutional. Um, some are concerned that they impinge on uh, individual human liberty. Um, and some, you know, a lot of people point out that they're often prompted by rare cases, thus supposedly making for bad law. Um, in addition, uh, you know, they, they may uh, prompt some uh, negative uh, consequences. So they may um, lead some uh, to self-incriminate, uh, which, as we know, is unconstitutional. Uh, rather, there's a protection against in, in the U.S. Constitution. And that they may be counterproductive, um, where um, a, a third party um, intervenes in a way that is harmful, actually, to either themselves, the victim, or perhaps the third party. Um, another sort of set of criticisms uh, is that they may be cost prohibitive to um, enforce, that they're um, perhaps unlikely to actually compel intervention, um, and that they um, uh, are just overall ineffective. Um, and so I would respond um, in a number of ways to these. I mean, first of all, um, bad Samaritan laws, um, you know, the, their vagueness is, isn't necessarily inherent or particular to uh, these types of laws, lots of other laws, um, you know, can be criticized as such. And all, all such laws, including bad Samaritan laws, um, could be improved um, where this criticism is valid um, through, you know, careful uh, drafting and, and adjudication. Um, 
you know, another, you know, concern would be uh, maybe there is uh, a point to expressing moral revulsion um, to um, some outrageous, uh, you know, emergencies or crimes. Um, and maybe society should uh, require some sort of minimum intervention over preserving uh, maximum liberty. And then finally, I might add, um, it's, it is possible, at least theoretically, that such laws, if properly enforced and publicized, um, could actually prompt reporting. Mm. Well, so I, I think it would be really helpful to have some examples of what a bad Samaritan law might look like. And in your paper, you look at several different kind of case studies, almost, of sort of circumstances in which duties to report or you know, duties to disclose information that someone knows uh, would potentially be relevant and might be, at least in theory, imposed. I wonder if you could talk about sort of like, what are the circumstances in which a bad Samaritan type law might come into play? Certainly, um, Brian. Well, why don't I start by giving you um, a specific example, um, just a concrete example of one bad Samaritan law. And then, um, and then we can go from there. So um, let me just start with California, a state that I um, recently lived in. And so I was studying the, the Bad Samaritan Law there. And also because its, um, its law was, the, was one of the outcomes of one of the case studies uh, in, in the article. So in California, um, the Bad Samaritan Law requires, with certain exceptions, um, anybody who, who reasonably believes that they have observed the commission of a murder, rape, or coerced, lewd, or lascivious act against a victim under 14 years of age to notify a peace officer. So, so what we have here um, you know, to focus on are uh, you know, who's required, what situations are they required to act in, um, and who are they uh, required to report to. Um, and so the, the situations in California are limited to murder, rape, or coerced, lewd, or lascivious acts, um, and crucially, against a victim under 14 years of age. In the United States, I've found um, at least three Bad Samaritan laws that include victim age restrictions. Um, one is in California, one is in Nevada, and one is at the federal level. Um, and we could debate um, the wisdom, uh, I would argue, against um, victim age uh, restrictions, um, particularly because, you know, I think the Me Too movement has really emphasized um, that, um, that children, uh, while um, certainly vulnerable uh, uh, to uh, sexual abuse, um, are not the only category of individuals that are in adults through protection, uh, too. Um, and so in California, though, it, it, these are limited. The acts against victims under 14 years of age are limited to murder, rape, or coerced, lewd, or lascivious acts. Some other states um, limit their bad Samaritan laws only to sexual crimes. Um, some of them are uh, more expansive and applying to, let's say, all felonies, um, as in at least one state. Uh, and some states require um, notifying uh, the authorities uh, more generally, um, which could include emergency medical services, so not necessarily just uh, the police. Mm, mm, mm. Well, so 
when states apply these kinds of bad Samaritan laws, sort of what specific contexts do they actually happen in? In other words, like why do states adopt these laws? What are they adopting them in relation to? And what kinds of problems are they supposed to be solving? Um, so, in, at least in, in the United States, and, and bad Samaritan laws do exist uh, abroad, but at least in the United States, many of the bad Samaritan laws uh, that I've found, um, generally speaking, have been introduced in response to a particularly egregious incident um, where there was a third party, a bystander, who um, could have helped and, and chose not to. Um, and so if we go back to California, um, both California and Nevada's Bad Samaritan laws were, were inspired by the same uh, awful tragedy. In 1997, uh, there was a seven-year-old girl named Sharice Iverson, um, whose father was gambling in a, in, a, in a casino in Prim, Nevada, uh, and he takes his daughter um, to, to come with him, and she's playing in the casino. Uh, and uh, two um, teenagers um, uh, are, are sort of playing around, around her. And one of them, Jeremy Strohmeyer, chases Charisse, uh, again, seven years old, um, into a women's uh, bathroom. Uh, and he proceeds to um, sexually molest and then murder uh, Charisse Iverson in, in the bathroom. Uh, his best friend, um, David Cash, uh, was present um, during part of the uh, assault. Uh, he was there to see that um, his best friend, Jeremy Strohmeyer, had pulled Sharice Iverson into the, um, the, the a toilet stall. Uh, and um, he began, and, he, and so David Cash witnessed him beginning to assault Sharice uh, Iverson. He then exits the... Uh, the bathroom, the women's restroom, uh, and stands outside for about 20 minutes um, while uh, Jeremy Strohmeyer um, continues to assault and murder uh, Sharice Iverson inside. Tr Jeremy Strohmeyer, upon emerging from the, uh, the women's restroom, confesses immediately to David Cash what he's done, um, and David Cash proceeds to um, encourage him to flee the country uh, helps him develop a, a false alibi and, uh, and also, um, you know, asks um, incredibly inappropriate uh, and offensive questions about the, uh, about the, um, the assault, the crime. Um, and so when this all came to light, uh, and it was clear that David Cash uh, had been present for at least the beginning of the assault and was standing outside the women's restroom uh, throughout the, the duration, um, a lot of uh, criticism was heaped upon David Cash because he easily could have flagged down uh, security, could have called the police. Uh, Jeremy Stromar was in the bathroom for quite a while, or he could have um, sought to intervene uh, himself. He knew uh, at least part of what was happening. And so this then led to calls for uh, what are known as bad Samaritan laws, or in this case, a duty to report law um, that would have required. Um, someone in David Cash's situation um, to notify uh, authorities. And because it wasn't on the books at the time, of course, he couldn't be um, prosecuted for a violation uh, of this law. But um, the, uh, the momentum in both uh, California and Nevada 
um, was such that a, a law like this should be on the books. And the reason that California is relevant, even though the crime occurred in Nevada, uh, is because the perpetrator, Jer Jeremy Strohmeyer, the bystander, David Cash, and the victim, Sharice Iverson, were all from uh, California. Mm -hmm. Well, so, I mean, maybe you could clarify for kind of non-lawyer slash law professor listeners, like, how can it be that what you're describing about Mr. Cash under the circumstances, I mean, how can it be that that wasn't a crime, right? I mean, like, why would we need a special law in order to prosecute someone for not stopping someone from raping and murdering a seven-year-old girl? I mean, that just seems like the most horrible thing I can possibly imagine. And like, how, how is it that that isn't already criminal? Well, the American tradition, um, you know, fiercely independent uh, as, as it is, um, pretty much focuses on the um, uh, criminalizing commissions uh, rather than omissions. Uh, and so um, while some other uh, countries are more open to criminalizing omissions, um, the United States traditionally has not been. Now that said, um, when other scholars have written on this topic, uh, I was surprised to find that they reported far fewer Bad Samaritan laws than I found. So I found that Bad Samaritan laws exist in 29 states plus Puerto Rico, um, and that there's a new one, a relatively new one as of 2018, at the federal level. Plus the United States um, has signed on to various international laws that I would uh, argue uh, constitute Bad Samaritan laws uh, as well. So for example, um, there are two treaties the United States has signed on to that uh, require the saving of astronauts um, in outer space. So, uh, so the tradition has, has typically been um, more focused on, on criminalizing commissions um, rather than omissions. And there's at least been the, the thought um, in, in scholarship and, and, and among practitioners um, that such laws are, bad Samaritan laws are, are not at all common in the United States. Um, I have found that they are actually um, extremely common. They are found in the majority of U.S. states um, and apply to about two-thirds of all Americans, um, despite the fact that most Americans don't realize that these laws exist or that they apply to them. Mm. Mm. Well, so in your paper, you discuss kind of different categories of ways in which people might be potentially subject to the bad Samaritan laws you discuss. I wonder if you could sort of tease out a little bit for listeners, sort of like the different ways we might think about these kinds of laws or these kinds of circumstances applying to people and how we might kind of categorize different forms of omission in the criminal context. Certainly, um, Brian. So, you know, one of the contributions that I hope my article uh, makes to the, to the literature, uh, in addition to correcting how many of these bad Samaritan laws actually exist, um, is to add much more nuance to our understanding of, of bystanderism. Um, so generally speaking, people um, kind of just have a, this, this overarching um, idea that bystanders are kind of monolithic, 
Um, but it turns out, uh, as I've um, been studying uh, many cases of bystanderism in the United States and abroad, um, there actually is a, is a wide range um, of, of bystanderism. Uh, and, you know, some people are, um, are actually, uh, you know, fully aware of what is happening and just doing nothing. And those are what I would call abstainers. There's also individuals who are aware of what's happening and engage in, harm, in, in sort of um, offensive, but not necessarily illegal conduct. And those are what I would call engagers. That, that might, um, an example might be someone who mocks uh, a victim uh, as um, a crime is perpetrated against that person. And then finally, um, we have uh, what I call enablers, um, which are individuals who are third party to, to a crime, but um, are actually uh, contributing in some way uh, uh, to the crime. And I would actually argue going back to the situation of David Cash, um, that he falls under this third category. He is no mere passive bystander uh, in the, uh, his best friend, Jeremy Strohmeyer's assault of Charissa Iverson. Uh, he when he's standing outside the bathroom, I would argue, uh, and you know, this could have gone to a jury, um, that he was standing guard, um, that he wasn't just you know, loitering or absentmindedly hanging about, that he was actually standing guard um, to, to prevent anybody else from entering uh, the bathroom. And then when he encourages uh, his friend to flee and helps him develop an out uh, of what's just um, happened, and so I argue in, in, in this article uh, and more generally that we should distinguish among these types of bystanders and think about how, um, if at all, to address them. I would argue that um, if you don't have an excuse for being a, a bystander, that if you're merely an abstainer, uh, that that's the category of individual we should think about um, charging with violations of a bad Samaritan law. Same would go for engagers, but for enablers, uh, we should strongly consider charging them with other crimes such as uh, accomplice liability. Um, and I'm shocked, having studied intensely the Sharice Iverson uh, case, that David Cash was not charged with, um, with one of those additional uh, crimes. Mm. Well, so I wonder if you could give some other examples to sort of flesh out the distinctions that you're trying to make, because it seems like, you know, in in the situation you described, I mean, David Cash's behavior was clearly appalling, and I understand why we would want to talk about that as as culpable behavior. But like, what other kinds of circumstances might result in less culpability or different kinds of culpability? Certainly. So um, let me take you to a case that happened in 2012 uh, in the small town of Steubenville, Ohio. And there, uh, a 16-year-old girl is repeatedly raped throughout the evening by um, two uh, other teenagers. Um, and there are uh, various people around uh, them and also in neighboring houses. There was sort of a series of parties that evening um, who are aware of what's happening because they're all texting each other about it and they're posting on social media uh, about it as well. And so, 
um, what happens is uh, one of the bystanders, one of the third parties decides to uh, um, post a video to uh, YouTube. Uh, his name, uh, incidentally, was Michael Nadianis. He posted a 12-minute video to YouTube mock uh, the victim um, as it was happening. Uh, so that very night, that very night, as the rape um, and rapes, uh, rather, because they're repeated, there were multiple her, uh, house uh, nearby um, commenting on it uh, publicly, uh, and then it's uh, and that video is uploaded, posted to to YouTube. I would argue that Michael Nadianos would fall into the category I just described as as an engager. Again, not a passive bystander. He's fully aware of what's happening and he's engaging with the crime in some way that incidentally, by the way, proves he knows what's, what's happening um, in an offensive way, uh, mocking uh, in this case. But it's not necessarily um, enabling the crime in the sense of being an accomplice, uh, as I would argue David Cash was. If we go to the lowest of the three stainer uh, levels uh, that I dismiss uh, tragedy, um, of the, the murder and rape of, um, of Kitty Genovese in Kew Gardens, uh, New York, that many of your listeners may recall from um, studying uh, social psychology, uh, perhaps in, in college. Um, so this is a situation where uh, a woman is coming home uh, from work uh, late at night, uh, and she is assaulted by a man named Winston Mosley, um, who, who rapes and then stabs her to death. Uh, and there were various neighbors uh, in the vicinity um, who were aware of what was happening um, and chose not to respond. Now, um, I've looked at the case pretty carefully, um, and a lot of a lot more research and reflection has come out since um, the initial reporting. Um, and it seems like most people now agree that the number of uh, bystanders uh, who knew what was happening and chose not to um, to intervene in any way, even by calling the police, is much lower than initially uh, reported. It was initially reported um, in the high 30s, um, and it, it turns out to be um, probably much less for uh, understandable reasons like some of her neighbors were asleep. Um, so in that case, though, there still are at least two, as I count them, individuals who full well knew what was happening and just chose not to, to call for help or, or otherwise uh, intervene. And I would call those individuals abstainers. Um, so individuals we still may, um, you know, think should be uh, held accountable um, or and otherwise, you know, should have been prompted to, to be helpful uh, and chose not to. Now, at the same time, there are what I would call upstanders. Um, so there are, thir there are also third parties in some of the cases that I've studied where individuals have been helpful. Um, and there were three, as I count them, in the case of Kitty Genovese, one of whom, Sophia Farrar, um, seldom discussed uh, in the literature, especially um, initially, um, was uh, Miss Genovese's across-the-hall neighbor. And uh, Sophia Farrar, uh, upon hearing um, Kitty Genovese crying out for help, um, races to her side, not knowing uh, whether the assailant, Winston Mosley, had actually left yet. So my read of it is that she actually risked her life um, to try to help uh, Miss Genovese 
um, whom she cradles um, in her arms as, as Miss Genovese unfortunately dies. Um, and, and so part of what I'm trying to look at as well in my research um, is the full range of third parties, not just bystanders, but also upstanders and to consider ways that we might be able to prompt or prod more bystanders to act instead as upstanders. Mm. Well, so what do you think that laws in this area ought to look like? In other words, sort of what should legislators take into account in thinking about how to draft bad Samaritan laws? And what should we want to be encouraging and, and also, like, what should we want to be avoiding them? Are there, are there potential problems? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the first thing that I, I want to stress is we need to take very seriously the criticisms of, of bad Samaritan laws. And one of the ways that I've done that um, is to argue that um, we should carve out what I call excused bystanders categories and write those into bad Samaritan laws so that we're absolutely clear on to whom these laws should not apply. Um, and so I've identified six uh, types of what I would call excused bystanders. Those uh, include survivors themselves, uh, confidants of uh, competent adult sexual violence survivors. Uh, the third would be unaware bystanders, people who, uh, for various reasons, like they are unconscious, asleep, or inebriated, are simply uh, do not perceive do not simply perceive the um, the reality of what they're uh, what what is going on around them. A fourth uh, category of unexcused of excused bystanders, I would argue, uh, should be children. Uh, the fifth are endangered bystanders. Uh, those would be individuals who. Um, would uh, put themselves or someone else in peril if they were to uh, try to intervene. And then finally, self-incriminators, people who would incriminate themselves in the same or related crime if they were to uh, intervene. So that's the first set of uh, recommendations I would suggest to, to policymakers uh, to keep in mind when drafting or amending um, bad Samaritan laws. There are a bunch of others too. Um, you know, one is that one of the, the biggest arguments against um, bad Samaritan laws is that, you know, in a society that's already so concerned with mass incarceration, um, is it really a good idea to add more laws or to enforce existing laws um, that might lead to more um, imprisonment? And so my response to that would, would simply be that um, for the bad Samaritan laws that currently include uh, carceral punishment, um, we should strip out, we should amend those laws um, to just include, um, you know, non, non-imprisonment uh, penalties, uh, such as fines or citations or community service uh, or something related. Um, also, of course, there's a, there's a significant literature that talks about how misdemeanors can still lead uh, to um, imprisonment, but at least for now, this could be um, a, a compromise. Um, and then finally, I would argue that, you know, we need to think about proliferating bad Samaritan laws at both the state um, and territory levels, as well as at the federal level, um, to deal with what is currently a patchwork of bad Samaritan laws um, that also misses, by the way, certain federal crimes, such as uh, human trafficking and 
uh, sexual abuse aboard an aircraft or in prison. Um, so there's lots of lots of ways that um, that the article suggests um, very practically either amending or drafting uh, bats merit laws. Mm, mm. Well, so I mean, I know that you're working more broadly in this area. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about where you're taking this project in the future. Thank you, um, Brian. So uh, this is the first in what's going to be a series of articles on uh, bystanders and upstanders in different situations. So for the very first uh, article in this series, I focused on sex crimes, um, and I've done so for a particular reason, actually two reasons. Um, And it's mostly because sex crimes are special. So um, one of the things that is uh, unique about sex crimes is that they are the least reported type of crime. And relatedly, they are the crime that when reported is least believed. And so for those two reasons, uh, which are obviously um, interrelated, um, I've, decided to, I've decided to focus this first article on, on sex crimes in the United States. Um, recognizing that bad Samaritan laws um, might offer the most promise for sort of corroborating that particular uh, type of, of crime. Also, um, certainly because of the, the Me Too movement, um, you know, these, the, the issue of sex crimes in the United States is, is on, on all of our minds. Um, and what I hope to do is to contribute to that discussion, because most of the discussion about the Me Too movement has centered on perpetrators and survivors, understandably. Uh, and so I wanted my intervention in that discussion to, to add value by, um, by thinking about third parties. Um, as we know that um, something like 16 people knew what, you know, Larry, uh, what Harvey Weinstein was, was doing and didn't say anything. Dozens of people knew what Larry Nasser uh, had been doing over decades. Uh, and never never said anything in, in other examples uh, abound. Um, so that's the first um, article. And then the next um, few articles will look at different uh, situations. I'm currently working on one uh, related to um, social media. And then all of these articles and some related op-eds are building to my next book, which will uh, consider bystanders and upstanders amid a variety of crimes and non-criminal crises. Um, so um, sex crimes and, um, and, and assault, um, but also uh, suicide, um, genocide, uh, drowning. Um, let me give you an example of, of drowning. In 2017, there's a man named Jamal Dunn um, who was drowning in a pond in Florida um, when uh, four teenagers decided to record themselves mocking him uh, and uploaded it to, um, to YouTube. Uh, and this prompted outrage uh, after the man died and his body couldn't be found for a number of days. This prompted outrage uh, in the Florida legislature um, and among Floridians and others um, and you know, led to um, in legislation being introduced uh, to consider bad Samaritan law, even in a non-criminal context, uh, where an individual's uh, you know physical well-being was um, was at, at great risk, uh, and so the the book will consider the full range of situations, emergencies um, where we might want to consider 
um, bad Samaritan laws. Well, thanks so much, Zach, for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking to you about this excellent paper, and I'm looking forward to seeing your work in this area as it develops. Thank you so much, Brian. Ohio.